I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right. Hopefully you have made it this far and you didn't panic about the title on this one. This is going to be fun because we have an English martyr who doesn't die in England. I told you I need, last week I needed a break from the English for a while. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs has just gotten me all wound up in medieval English history, and I need a bit of a break if I'm going to keep this series going, because otherwise my brain will fry and it won't be any fun anymore. So we are getting about as far away from English history as we can, although we can't get away from um, British people, and I'm going to make that distinction there important for a minute. Um, we are going to 19th century Korea. Dun, 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 dun. And now, this is where it gets fun. Eastern history is a mess. And when I say that, partially it's because we don't study it in Western society very much. Um, if you have a college degree... Actually, let's go back. So if you went to high school, you took a world history class where you probably had a chapter on... Ooh, as I smacked my microphone. It probably had a chapter or so on Eastern history. If you have a bachelor's degree, you probably, for your history credit, were required to take Western Civilization, where we don't even pay any attention to Eastern history because they don't necessarily intersect very well. And even in the midst of that, you have very little exposure to um, ancient Near Eastern or even Middle Eastern history. So part of the difficulty is our lack of background. The other part of it is the people who have studied Eastern history for so long – have made it complicated. I mean, there's actually there was actually a segment of the uh, academy that went out of its way to keep the English writings of Chinese names and places and words as complicated as possible, so that you couldn't just like, grab it and understand the translations or the transliterations as they were brought into English. So you want to talk about gatekeeping of the highest order? There you go. So, in a nutshell. This is going to be the super quick and dirty Reader's Digest version here. In a nutshell, when you are dealing with Eastern history, you are dealing with diverse groups that have not-so-diverse origins. So I've talked about this before in Western history. I don't know if I've talked about it exactly here, but you have Germans, and you have Gauls, and you have Celts, and you have Rus, and at the end of the day, they're almost all descended from the same geographical area. So you go back far enough, and the biblical testimony is confirmed. They're all the same people. When you deal in Eastern history, you have Japanese culture, and you have Chinese culture, and you have Korean culture, and even amongst Chinese culture, there are multiple different groups within that culture. So you have Qing people, and you have Zhao people, and you have Jin people, and it's like, oh my goodness. And at the end of the day, they are almost all interrelated. You know, the Mongols, even though they're in a similar area, are not the same as the Qin people that'll be, that'll take the name, that the modern Chinese uh, nation will take its name from. So... You have a lot of interfighting and a lot of interworking and a lot of interdistrust. So I tell you that because at the end of the day, people are people and they assemble structures and systems that benefit them. Enter into 19th century Korea. It is part of the Qing dynasty, which was the longest dynasty in China's history. At the time, um, at the end of the 18th century, it was actually the fourth largest dynasty by size or, or empire rather in the world 
So they they were kind of a big deal, the Qing were. Now, part of the problem with being a long-lived empire is you have risings and fallings and good news and bad news. And, and when you get to the middle of the 19th century, you have open rebellion against the Qing, uh, Qing dynasty in multiple different fronts. You have what will later become Korean peoples revolting. You have what will later become separate Mongol groups revolting. You have what will later become the Japanese revolting. Remember, nations, as the way you understand them, aren't typically well-defined until really the end of the 19th beginning of the 20th century so just just and even after that sometimes it's a little iffy just just something to keep in the back of your mind we've also had international conflict with the Qing dynasty there have been two opium wars there have been risings and fallings with international trade and something that was almost inherent to eastern culture was its closedness so part of the reason for the opium wars was that you were trying to find Western powers were trying to find ways to even out their trade imbalances with these with the Eastern powers. So England and France and other Western colonial groups were trying to figure out how do we even out trade over tea and other goods that we are getting from China. Well, I'm just going to use China as a term for these for this large uh, empire here. How do we even that out? Because China was very glad to give you their stuff and take your money, but they weren't willing to take your stuff and give you their money. That's where you get some of the difficulties and problems that come in with uh, with those battles in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. Now. With that, you also have, I've mentioned highly regulated trade. You Part of the reason for the highly regulated trade is the highly regulated philosophy. Part of the reason to keep the trade one-sided was to keep the ideas one-sided. You didn't want your Confucianism being diluted by Western society. And keep in mind, there had been trade between what we know of as China and Eastern cultures going all the way back to the Romans in the time of Christ. So it's not like it's a new thing, but it has been very sheltered and very protected. Case in point, there were numerous Roman Catholic missionaries working their way in and around China. They had some uh, had several large parishes formed uh, in 1866, going back to the end of the 18th century, so late 1700s. In 1866, 8,000 Catholics of the amongst the locals were executed. So when they went on purges, they went on purges. Now, I tell you that story because it builds you the foundation for Robert Thomas. I'm going to try to do this quickly because I know that took long. Robert Thomas is a Welsh missionary to China. So he's still British, but he's not English just because that's one of the quirks of that little part of the world. But he wants to work in Korea. He eventually gets himself into Korea, and he becomes only the second Protestant missionary ever entering into Korea in 1865. Prior to that, a, a German missionary had made his way in in the 1830s, but he had gone in with Chinese Bibles. There was no there was no Korean written material. Thomas spends two and a half months in Korea has some interesting interactions. Part of his diary survives where they're threatened. He's right, he writes down how they've been threatened by locals and they're they're blaming these guys who have been who've been cutting timber on a sacred island for the storms that have come upon this area. So ends up back in China <clears throat> and wants to get back into some of the rural areas of Korea because even with this Qing dynasty there are still several thousand acres of rural areas. Uh, in 1866, he gets patch his passage on a French ship. The French don't want to go to Korea, though. They end up going to Vietnam. That becomes a whole sort of history that influences us in the 20th century as Americans, but we won't go there. 
Um, so Thomas ends up getting on an American ship and convinces it to travel into Korea under the ruse of opening up trade. The ship wants to open up trade and make money, which, by the way, is illegal at this time. If you are uninvited, you don't get to trade. Thomas just wants him to sail up the river so he can chuck gospel tracts onto the shore and try to evangelize the masses. So the ship does it. The uh, The ship is the Sherman, and they sail up the Taedong River, and Thomas is literally throwing gospel tracts onto shore from the boat and trying to evangelize. Now, closed society with regulated closed trade not wanting outside philosophical ideas as they see them. What could possibly go wrong with this trip? And your answer is, well, probably everything. And you would be right, especially when you take into the fact that the Sherman doesn't really care about opening international trade. They want to make money for themselves, and they don't really care about Thomas's gospel mission because they want to, wait for it, make money for themselves. So the crew of the Sherman engages in some lovely shenanigans. And when I say shenanigans, that's the polite way of saying they, um, they kidnapped a Korean official as well as two of his workers who were in charge of communication and translation between the ship's crew and the people. Um, they end up killing some people when the locals have to rescue this official from the ship under the cover of darkness. In retaliation, they fired their cannons at crowds of civilians, killing seven, wounding several others, and eventually, through their own incompetence, run aground on a mud bank in the middle of the river. Who could have seen that one coming? The Koreans see their chance, and they basically launch an assault on the disabled Sherman, killing everyone on board. Now, you're going, where's the martyr story? Here it is. There are varying accounts of how Robert Thomas dies. So Fox's Book of Martyrs tells you that he was beheaded on the ship, holding out his Bible, yelling out, Jesus, Jesus, in Korean. And there are accounts from the official government um, stories that they, the invaders did actually behead crew members. The official account is that Robert Thomas swam ashore, and he was clubbed to death by locals. They were making no distinction between who would be a missionary and who would be basically a pirate, which is how the Sherman was operating. There's also, though, local legend from area Christians that say that Thomas made his way to shore and was killed by locals while holding out his Bible, yelling out, Jesus, Jesus. So you work out what actually happened. At the end of the day, I don't know. And here's the best part. It actually doesn't matter because here's where Robert Thomas's story becomes cool. And Robert Thomas makes it as a martyr. He wasn't trying to kill anyone. He wasn't trying to get the Sherman to engage in shenanigans. He genuinely wanted to get the gospel spread to the Korean people. Pak Yong Sik, and I hope I'm saying that right. That's the English spelling, so I'm just going to go with it. Is the gentleman, a government official who in 1866 ends up in possession of Robert Thomas's Bible, his Korean Bible. Pak Yong-sik takes this book home and finds it interesting, and he begins to wallpaper his home with it. Now, we know this because this is discovered by other Christians who end up making their way back into the area 25 years later. For 25 years, this, uh, this uh, Yong-sik's house is famous because he wallpapered his home with Robert Thomas's Bible, and people would come by so they could read the walls. Literally reading the writing on the wall. You insert your own Bible Daniel joke there. Now you're going, well, what's so big about that? Well, there's actually some testimony from the Koreans that nobody knows, you know, the, the locals, you know, poor fishing villages, things like that. Nobody knows what in England is. Nobody knows what a Wales is or what their culture or history is. But they know that Robert Thomas is Welsh because Pak Young-sik 
preserves the story of who Robert Thomas was and where he got the information. And there was in that area, until communism comes along, of course, in that area, many, many solid Bible-based churches because of the work of Scripture left by Thomas because of his travels and his death. Now, I have no idea anything else about Thomas. I know he was married. His wife died in childbirth while they were missionaries in China. I know he's a man who gave his life for the gospel because that was his mission in the world. Ultimately, though, Christian, rest here. Even if history judges it to be empty, even if it feels like you didn't accomplish anything, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And while Thomas's life was gone, the gospel was never extinguished. And God builds his kingdom by his word and through his power each and every day. Remember that as you go about your work. And until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.